Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to The Tapping Go. My name is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals. And we get their views on the latest sporting issues. So hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Tap and Go. Today we have players dominated both 7s and 15s, winning World Player of the Year in the 7s field and Best Overseas Player in the France League. Welcome Ollie Phillips, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks Matty. You should, uh, you should be doing my PR, which I'm all so <laughs> delighted about. So you know, great to be here, good to be on the show and uh, nice to meet you both. Yeah, sure. So we just want to quickly touch, so we actually want to start with the stuff after your rugby career at the start and just talk about sort of like your adventures and your explorations that you're doing, um, very successful charity work and so on. And one that sort of really stuck to mind, I guess, as a rugby podcast is your fixture in the North Pole. Could you quickly just talk us through that and sort of how it started and everything? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, so it, it originated from, it was, a, you know, it was a charity event orchestrated by the Wooden Spoon, which is the children's charity of rugby. And I was uh, one of the lead ambassadors for that charity. And they'd seen, uh, they'd wanted to do something that was significant that year um, because of the fact that there was a World Cup happening in in England, on English shores, and they wanted to sort of put the charity on the map and make a big song and dance about the charity. Um, uh, And so they sort of said, look, we want to go and set a Guinness World Record. They'd seen some of the crazy stuff that I'd done around sailing around the world the previous year with, with the clip around the world race. And they approached me originally, they approached me to be the referee. Actually, they said "Look, would you come and be the referee for this game for the most northerly game of rugby played in history? Tim Stimson and Pat Sanderson were going to be the two skippers and I was going to be the ref. And then Pat couldn't do it for whatever reason. So they said, look, actually, would you, would you mind being a skipper and we're going to get Lee Mears to be the referee? Um, and so I thought, oh, you know, Sod it. Why not? Let's let's do it. I mean, a, a hell of an adventure. Raise a load of money for a brilliant charity, and equally go to you know a place that I probably wouldn't ever go to as a holiday destination in, in the North Pole. So let, let's give it a go. Yes, yeah, so obviously that's one of the pretty greatest challenges anyone could take on. How did you sort of go about preparing for it, and was there anything that you found particularly difficult? Um. Well, I mean, there's always, there's always these things. There's, there's, you know, there's a big sort of drama and a build-up before you go away for all these sorts of things. So everyone gets a bit het up and they're like, oh, we need to go and walk for 17,000 miles all around the, you know, the, the Monroes in Scotland. Or, you know, we went and camped out in Ogmore in Wales. Now, the honest answer is Scotland or Ogmore in Wales have got no way of possibly replicating what the North Pole is like ever, even though it does get a bit bleak and a bit cold in both. But... You know, so you know, you go in with all these sorts of delusions of grandeur in terms of like, yeah, we're fully prepared and we've done all the work and we've walked thousands of miles, which don't get me wrong, is is important because you can't just turn up there having done nothing. Um, but at the same time, you know, nothing prepares you for just how bloody cold it is up there and you know how stark the conditions are and 
you know, it's it's the closest that I could possibly imagine to what a lunar landscape looks like. Just miles and miles and miles of of nothing, and just ice. And this, I guess, getting getting comfortable around. The only things you're going to see are probably polar bears, which will eat you. So you don't want to see them anytime soon. Probably broken ice or you know crevasses, which you don't want to be walking over. Um, and then you you know your fellow crewmates or whatever you know fellow teammates. So um, you want to stick as close as you can to them. So uh, so I mean, it, it was amazing. It was an unbelievable experience, and I would just say that. The physical prep was obviously critical, but there's nothing that can can prepare you for for what you know the North Pole is going to be. And equally, you know, four years later, we went into Everest, and and that was the same thing. Nothing can prepare you for how much of a beast that is as well until you're actually there. Mm. So I guess you mentioned sort of Everest. You're like you're sort of sail around the world, and now and North Pole. Is there sort of this like adventurous spirit, or sort of like this exploration? Has this sort of stemmed throughout your life or is there like, has it been sort of something after your rugby career? No, mate, I've just been an idiot from, for most of my life. You know, um, I, mean, I, I wasn't like, you know, you know, the adventures of Phileas Phillips and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, I, I, I was interested in some of the, you know, the history and whatever of some of these amazing adventures and explorers, but I didn't know loads about it. So if, if I'm being like really honest, I, I mean, the actual challenge itself is is the is the physical tick box, if you like, that I I need in order to sort of focus my mind and train towards something, and you know that makes it feel like a bit of a challenge. But the real enjoyment for me is not the certificate at the end or standing at the top of the mountain or at the pole or whatever. That that don't worry, that's great and it's good for Instagram or whatever else. But um, but the real fun is is actually just. Is the is the people that I'm doing it with that that's the real I'm not one of those adventurers that you know, wants to sort of stand on their head for 50 days and you know and, and or or you know, trek and be on their own for five months you know, I'm just not interested in that at all you know for me it's about having this sort of shared experience shared story so that at the end of it you know if, if you like that resonates back to my rugby days what I loved about rugby was not really getting beaten up every week. And, you know, and not being able to walk on the Sunday or whatever else afterwards. You no, know, I didn't enjoy that bit, but I loved the shared experience and the shared challenge and the shared victory. And all those people that I played with, I can look back in 20 years time, 40 years time, or whatever, when I'm in my wheelchair and still have that sort of wry smile of like, do you remember when we did that? Do you remember when that happened? And, and that's what it's, that's what it's about. That's what's special for me. That's the reason why I love it is, is those sort of, shared memories and shared experiences and the magnitude of the challenge, whether it be North Pole, Everest or whatever else is, I guess what makes that narrative a bit more compelling, a bit more, a bit more memorable. Yeah. It sounds incredible. Just out of interest, obviously 99% of the people listening to this podcast won't have any idea of what doing Everest or going to North Pole is like. Do you have any like standout stories which you could enlighten us with? People love all the like brutal ones, right? You know, the gruesome, difficult ones and they're, we have both of them on uh, on there. So on on the Everest one, um, our one of our, our top bloke called James O'Malley. He was kind of like a he was part of the expedition group, but he was also a trained paramedic. But he, when we got to advanced base camp, which is sort of six and a half thousand meters, he'd been struggling a little bit at base camp with uh, you know with with some of the altitude and and some of his breathing and a bit of a just bit of a maybe a chest infection but we weren't sure anyway 
you know, the lesson from that is if you don't feel very well, stay where you are because he, he came up to advanced base camp. And when we got there, he really deteriorated quickly. His lung actually collapsed on the mountain. Um, and when you're that high up uh, on, on anywhere, if you're at that sort of altitude, helicopters and that can't fly that high. So we had to medivac him off the mountain at, this is about half past two in the evening on the back of a yak, which is basically like a, a cow. Um, put him on the back of this. It was a nine hour walk down the mountain off the side of the cliff. And it goes pitch black. Once the sun goes behind the mountain, it goes pitch black. So you're literally like daylight, nothing, daylight, nothing. And so by 4.30, it was pitch black. So he, he walked for seven hours off the back of this yak with his lung collapsed. As he reached base camp, he actually went into respiratory arrest, so he technically died. They resuscitated him. And because there was a feud between Tibet, which is where we were at this point, and Nepal on the other side, we couldn't get him across the border. We couldn't get medivaced out for a helicopter, so we had to smuggle him in the back of a car um, over some blankets across the border into Nepal and then have him medivaced out. And that was in May of 2019 and he didn't get home and out of intensive care until October of the same year. So, so he was in a pretty bad way. So that was a, you know, that was a grim story, but, but equally, you know, he's an inspiring one because I've never seen such sort of grit and determination. And then, you know, but then some inspiring ones, you know, that just the majesty of the, of the mountain, like this place is, you stand at the bottom of it totally awe-inspired like it's just it's just like a feeling i've never had before i didn't think i'd have it and then you get there and you just realize the majesty of this mountain and how humbling it is and you are totally at its mercy some of the most amazing scenery and you know just one of those pinch yourself moments but you appreciate everything in life moments so you know we've we've had the good the bad and the ugly um, on on these mountains, and 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 that's what's made it so special. Mm. And obviously, just as it's the rugby pole was the rugby match in the North Pole. Yeah, well, both were both were actually. So so the North Pole was to set a world record for the most northerly game of rugby ever played in history. The one up Everest was to set two Guinness World Records for the, the highest games of rugby ever played in history. So I was one captain, Shane Williams, the British Lions, the other captain, and Tamara Taylor, the England captain, former um, England international, she was the ref. So similar sort of package, if you like. It was, you know, four years on, World Cup happening in Japan. They wanted to do the same again. And the North, the North Pole was different because you didn't have altitude to wrestle with. You just had the cold and the fact that you were walking on, like, frozen ocean. So, you know, we had we had a couple of scares there. Well, we had one mate, massive scare. Luckily, not members of our group. But on day five of our expedition, three miles due east from where we'd set up camp, there were these two, uh, uh, like, explorers, adventurers out on the ice. Um, as for National Geographic, they were measuring the thickness of the polar ice cap. And I don't know why, but in the middle of the evening... They'd set up their camp. They cut their ice blocks ready for, for camp. The husky was outside. The pork was outside. And when you go to bed at night, they, you can hear the water moving underneath the ice. And for some reason, don't know why, where their tent was, the ice moved and shifted in a big way, cracked, and their tent fell through the water and they both died. 
and that was a you know we we weren't even halfway at that point and that was a pretty like oh my god like what the hell are we doing out here kind of moment when we heard that news coming through um but you know again i think whilst it was tragic for them and their families it was it was what brought us actually quite close together as, as a group afterwards because you know we suddenly realized the magnitude of where we were how dangerous it was but equally how much of an achievement it would be if we you know if we if we got there and if we reached the you know we reached the top etc cetera, etc cetera, and got to the north pole set this world record and whatever else but but you know as you're going every day you wake up at six take your tent down you you cut your ice blocks cook your porridge you know melt the ice and cook it in the freeze-dried bags get out your tent pack up your tent you walk non-stop from seven in the morning which is when you know it's warm enough to do it you stop at four and then you put everything you um you basically set up camp again, cut your ice blocks, ready to melt your water and eat again. You do that for 13 days. So, you know, it, it was it was brilliant. It was a simple way of life, but in a brilliant way of life. Well, that's like a, definitely like sort of a fantastic sort of experience. And I guess, yeah, it's sort of just shocking hearing sort of all the stories that you come across. And you don't really, I guess, anticipate that when you just read the headline on the article saying, um, so-and-so goes play rugby in North Pole, which is... Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, we need, we need to get you and Freddie out there, Matt. That's for certain. Yeah. <laughs> get you out there next time. So um, I guess, well, I want to move on and just talk about your rugby career now. So I guess, where did it all start? Was it, were you sort of born to play rugby professionally or? No, definitely not, mate. I mean, you know, I've, got a, you know, I've got a face that only a mother could love. So I needed to try and develop some form of talent that I could, you know, get a girlfriend or something like that. And, you know, clearly rug- rugby was the way forward because I couldn't play football. So two left feet. Um, I just, I, I was like, I think I was like every other kid or, you know, there's loads of different routes, but, you know, mine was local mini rugby club back home where I'm from originally in Hove. And, you know, that then offered me the opportunity to then keep going. At my school, it started to get a bit more serious. I went to a school called Brighton College, which now is an amazing school. But when I was there, it was sort of all right. Um, but I love my sport played all the way through, started to play county, started to play international sort of under 16s, under 18s and whatever else. And it was only really when I was about 17, 18 that it started to, to I don't know, potentially become a career. Harlequins were sniffing around me. And no, I, I think there was, there was quite a lot of pressure as a young sort of 17, 18 year old lad to sort of figure out what the hell it is you want to do. And do you go and finish your education? Can you get distracted by you know, the glitz and glamour of maybe playing, you know, being a pro rugby player and all the rest of it. And thankfully, I I mean, I look at it as a blessing now, but I, I totally ballsed up my A-levels from what I was predicted and what I got. So I realised I better go to university. So I, I turned down the offer from Harlequins of a contract and went up to Durham Uni. And when I was at Durham, I, uh, I, I sort of I knew that I needed to right the wrong of my A level, so I you know, managed to get my two one and all the rest of it. And when I was there, luckily Newcastle Falcons were on the doorstep, and they came knocking after probably second year. And I had a fortunate enough; I had an absolute stormer for my in my first game in four them. I scored three hat tricks in a row, and Rob Andrew was like, "Right, you're straight into the first team." and I scored two on my first debut against Glasgow, and from then on, that was it. I mean, that was, you know, that that was that. You know, I 
I mean, don't get me wrong, it was it was it wasn't always plain sailing. There was a few bumpy roads and whatever else. And I think at the end of my Newcastle experience, I was almost contemplating that it wasn't going to go anywhere, and I was probably going to have to hang it all up. And then out of nowhere, Stad Francais came in, and it just went into a different stratosphere. So you know, yeah, I mean, always are these things about timing and a bit of good fortune and whatever else. And, and luckily, I was I, I've sort of played you know reap the rewards of that. Yeah, so you talk about playing for Dyne there. What was it like playing for such a sorry competitive and but strong uni side? But also trying to do you try and balance your social life with rugby? I loved it, mate. I mean, uni rugby was my favourite of all rugby that I've ever played. So you're playing with your best mates, like in a competitive environment. I mean, you'll know that now, Freddie. From you, know, I think you're at Exeter, aren't you? So I mean, great, you know, another great sort of rugby hotbed area. I just. Yeah, I loved it being part of, I think, well, I think it's called Bucks now, but ours was Booster or whatever back then. And that was probably my greatest memory is winning Booster, winning Bucks with Durham in my third year, going to Twickenham with all my best mates. We we beat Exeter in the final. So sorry about that, Freddie. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, it, it was just a, just a wicked experience. We, um, we, we apparently have got, Johnny Mays apparently rathered it from the weekend, but, but we, we have got what was billed by the Times and the Telegraph as the greatest try tele- Twickenham's ever seen. We went from our own dead ball line. Um, but it was just, it was amazing. Like, honestly, absolutely brilliant. The whole experience was great. I was lucky that Newcastle was sort of fairly understanding and supportive of, of uni at the same time. And it was only 20 minutes up the road for me to, to go and go and play. So that, that, that helped as well. But uh, I, I think there's, there's too much focus at the moment on like getting them in early, you know, from 17, 18 and, and not necessarily thinking about the, the person and the individual and what's be- best for them at the end of it all. And luckily the coaches at Newcastle at the time were supportive of that. And, 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 and as a result, you know, my progression was, I got to experience all the amazing things about university. And then I got to experience all the amazing things about being a professional rugby player. Mm-hmm. What, what, so was you, your, you talk, uh, what was you your, what was your, um, Oh God, Matty, you go, Matty, you yeah, go. Matty, yeah. Um, what was your experience like with sort of playing with Newcastle and like the Falcons, like especially in, like the professionalism and sort of the off the pitch sort of culture, can like, can, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, I went to Newcastle in uh, what year was it? 2003. So I turned up, and that was obviously when Wilco had just kicked the winning drop goal to win a World Cup, right? So he was poster boy for English rugby, and he was playing for Newcastle Falcons. And there was a, the fitness coach at the time was a guy called Steve Black, and he was he'd sort of taken me on as a bit of a protege, and he was Johnny's mentor. And Will, I don't know if you guys remember, Wilco came back for the World Cup injured. He had some problems with his neck, so he didn't actually play for like I don't know, four months, five months post the World Cup. So it was like one of those pinch myself moments. I just watched this bloke kick the winning drop goal at you know the World Cup, sort of my icon, sort of hero, and then. Blackie was like, I'll oh, come train. I rocked up to training and it was just me, Wilco and Blackie. And that was it for like four months. And I was like, holy shit. You know, I, I was still at uni. You know, I, I had another year left of, of my degree. And here I was sort of training with the, you know, arguably one of the best players in the world, England hero. You know, so and it, it, I ended up becoming pretty good friends with him. I ended up living with, living with him for a tiny bit as well. But yeah, it was... It was awesome going into that environment with, 
equally for me, some incredible players like you know turning up. Wilco obviously being there, but then Matt Burke, who was the Australian fullback, Jamie Noon, Toby Flood, Matt Tate, all, all these awesome players that you know went on to amazing international careers, and then being able to learn from them. You know, we we had some we had some incredible players that came through with me and that were there at that time. Jeff Parling, another one, went on to become a British and Irish line. Carl Heyman, the the New Zealand prop. So. Yeah, it was it was wicked, mate. It was I, I, can't, I can't. It was it was almost like the perfect breeding ground for me, if that makes sense, to sort of develop and 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 understand the game a bit more. I mean, that's any kid's dream with the World Cup winner, sort of training with him. Did you learn anything? Did he, any major lessons which he taught you? Yeah, just that I was not very good compared to him. <laughs> um, no, I just he he is a different beast, right? He's a different human being all round. And with it comes incredible talent, but also incredible pressure. And I think you know, the greatest thing Wilco ever did is he had success everywhere he went, everywhere he went. Anything he touched, he was brilliant at. The sad thing about it is everything he touched, he everyone else enjoyed it, but he didn't, if that makes sense. It's only post his career that he sort of appreciated it all and in the latter stages of it. But in terms of his... In terms of his natural ability, don't get me wrong, he was talented, but he was definitely not the most talented player. But I have never in all my life, even to this day, met anyone that is as mentally tough as he is. I've never witnessed it in my life. But we, we, To give you an example, we, there was an England fitness test which was sort of heralded and feared and whatever all over the place. And you know, at one point in time, he and I were number one and two, so we were vying. So like basically we'd constantly flip between who was first and second in terms of our best scores on this fitness test. And I remember I did a session with him and, and Steve Black and I was banjaxed at the end of it. I was dead as a dodo. I couldn't walk. My legs were screaming. I just collapsed as a heap on the floor. And so did Wilco. He was absolutely gone next to me. And I never forget, Blackie said to me, Ollie, you chill out, mate. You're done for the day. And I was like, thank God for that. Music to my ears. And he said, Wilco, get up. And he grabbed Wilco and he gave him a football and he put him in front of this wall, like, you know, a bare wall. And he said, right, off you go. And he asked Wilco to do straight volleys. So it wasn't allowed to bounce and he had to go alternate feet. And he wasn't wasn't allowed to make any mistakes. And the whole premise was like, how many could you do? Absolutely screaming, legs ruined, lungs shredded. And he stopped him at 637. Oh my god! And I've just never witnessed anything in my life like it. I was like, "How's he doing this? Like, how? It's like I, I couldn't even get up off the floor." And I was like, "This bloke is. I know he's feeling the same pain. I know he is. I've seen him. I've heard him. I was just sat with him, but he just takes himself to a different place. He just he could do that. He was that sort of mentally." strong you know capable if you like and i've just never i've never witnessed a, a player that well to be honest that, that could do that or or but yeah a could do that and be liked doing it and was prepared to do that you know so many of them would get so far and then quit whereas he just would never quit and, and that was that was his greatest thing yeah i mean it showed the dedication the bloke had to the sport all righty guys it's that time again time to pay for the pints 
Today's podcast has been brought to you by our mates over at Team Blazers. Big shout out to them. The great British Blazers company, kidding you out for every match day social. Check them out now. So obviously, yeah. you your career started based on 15s, but then you moved on to 7s world. How did that sort of link? Where did the link come there? Yeah, but for... So the way it used to work with England was you used to all meet as a squad. They'd just pick up the big England squad and then they would, you know, you turn up and Clive Woodward or whatever was there and then they'd say like, like, Ollie, you know, you're off to play sevens in Dubai. Freddie, you're going to go play England Saxons and Matt, you're, you're going to go play against New Zealand at Twickenham in, on the weekend, right? It was, it was sort of like that. So my, I, luckily for me, you know, I'd had a bit of song and dance about some of my performances at like under 21 level for the, for the Falcons. And then they brought me in and, you know, on my debut, as I said, I'd scored, I'd scored two and against Glasgow and it, you know, sort of gone quite well. So after six months, by the December, I, I'd been called into the England setup. Um, and Mike Friday at the time was our sort of head coach for the sevens. And he sort of said, look, I want you to, we're going to pick you and take you to, to Dubai. And we had an unbelievable team. Like it was, Hugo Monnier was there with me. Matt Tate was there with me. Henry Paul, Pete Richards, Pat Sanderson. Some, just a wicked squad that we went with, as well as the likes of Amor and Gollings and whatever else. And, um, uh, and I met, we went and we won. We won the first time England and won in Dubai and it was just phenomenal. And I was like, this is incredible. 60,000 people playing for England. Like, this is the dream. And it was just a bug. It's just infectious. And so from then on, I was just obsessed with trying to get better and better and better. And I just love the, the sevens more. You know, mainly because I just you just get the ball more. I just love getting a ball. And, um, and so, yeah, so I did that and and then was fortunate enough to play with some amazing players that meant that you know, we won a lot. We were it was like the the golden era for England sevens, and I happened to be captain as well during that period. And you know there was clearly a dearth of talent, no one kicking around in two thousand nine. So they thought, right, let's give it to the charity case. So they gave it to me as the best player in the world in two thousand nine. You talk about your captaincy there, and then. I think it was the 2008 season you didn't play until I think the last two tournaments and then on yeah. the back of that you got appointed captain straight away so did that come a bit of a surprise to you? Yeah it did it did to be honest because I'd, I I hadn't played for about a year and a bit because I, things were going really really well at Newcastle and that they, they were just wanting me to play 15s the whole time so I, I, I couldn't go it was a, you know, a bit of club versus country issues but, but you know at the end of the day I focused on my 15s and then um, Ben Ryan asked me to come in and, and play the final two tournaments at Twickenham and, uh, and Edinburgh. And it went well. And I brought like a dynamic to it that he hadn't seen before. And I think he enjoyed the sort of spirit around all. And for Dubai, he made me skipper, which was awesome. You know, it was a, you know, a lifelong dream to do that. And to captain your country is special. And, you know, when you hear that national anthem and you, you're sort of leading the troops, it's, it's a wicked experience. But uh, it, it would have meant nothing if you know, it hadn't been with such an awesome group of people and we hadn't had such amazing success on and off the field. And that's what made it even more special. Mm. So I guess you sort of touched on sort of your experience playing in France and Stad and so on. What was it? Yeah, what was it like sort of like moving to a new country and sort of the, the culture change in terms of sort of like the rugby culture change? Well, as well as a societal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, going from Newcastle where we had like 
three men and their dog come watch a game and then go in a stad where we had 80,000 and we're playing in pink with a load of women from the Moulin Rouge pitch side with all their boobs out and you know wrestlers in the middle of the field and fireworks and it was surreal as a rugby experience both as a brand and a product but also as as the way the French play rugby um but it was it's pretty tragic the last couple of days because my, my coach who signed me at that point was Christophe Dominici he was his first year as coach so obviously he he um unfortunately um passed away two two days ago um but I, I just remember thinking here was an opportunity for me that I just had never thought was feasible or possible I was going to go play for a side that at that at that point in time were the biggest or one of the biggest teams in Europe all the I mean the, the squad was ridiculous I mean you went through the team you had Benjamin Kayser Ron Serro uh, in our front row, yeah, David Atube, another French international. We had Pascal Pape, Tom Palmer, Simon Taylor, Juan Leguizamon, James Haskell, Sergio Parise, Mauro Bergamasco, Julien Dupuy, Lionel Boxis, Mathieu Bastereau, Gonzalo TAC. I mean, the list was just ridiculous in terms of like all these players that I was going to go play with. And I was like, this is nuts. But I never forget, I got a phone call in the I was at Durham actually watching a charity game um, and I got a phone call that evening and it was Ewan McKenzie, an Australian accent on the phone. And he was like, oh, good eye, all mate, blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. It's Ewan, Ewan McKenzie, yeah? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course it's Ewan McKenzie. I thought it was Jeff Parling because he'd been doing a load of skits with Danny Hitkiss, ringing people, pretending to be John Wells, telling them they were in the England squad when they weren't. So... So I was like, oh, this has got to be one of these boys taking a piss because it was you, you and Mackenzie ringing me up, telling me that they wanted me to come to Paris. They were looking to sign me in Paris, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, no chance, mate, whatever. See you later. Bye. And just put the phone down on him. And then realised, um, like, didn't think anything of it. Went to Wellington with England. We won in Wellington, which was epic. Beat New Zealand in the final. And off the back of that, I got player of the tournament and he rang me that night as we're out on the piss in in Wellington celebrating and he was like mate what a game like Max Max loved it Max Quasini who's our was our sort of gregarious gay owner he's like he needs you he wants you to come to Paris you need to fly here as soon as you land I was like this is Jeff Jeff is that you and he's like who's the douche I remember you and saying who's Jeff <laughs> and I was like oh yeah sorry sorry, sorry. I couldn't hear. I was like bad line bad line sorry hi Ewan how are you so I landed back from Wellington and, uh, and flew straight to Paris for two, two nights, met Max, sat down with him for lunch, and then it was done. It was, he just said, I want, you to, I want you to join, I want you to come, and it was the best experience of my life. Best, I mean, best rugby experience of my life. Well, rugby and cultural experience of my life. What a city, what a club, what a place. Just, yeah, everything about it, amazing. And being from Brighton, the opportunity to wear pink is obviously, you know, it's critical. <laughs> so I guess you mentioned like Ewan McKenzie and another um, Australian coach who worked with later is Michael Checker at Stad. Um, I guess he's got a lot of talk at the moment. We're working with Argentina and sort of off to Lebanon next year. What was he like as a coach? Because obviously we hear stories of him like sort of 
being sort of this passionate, fiery guy who sort of riles the team up. Well, he is. I mean, that's exactly what he is. He he's a he's a brilliant coach. Um, I don't know how great he is in terms of you know as a as a moral fiber or whatever. But but he, but he was a wicked coach, and I loved playing underneath him in terms of his coaching ability. Um, and you know, I think you saw what he could do with Australia. It obviously ended a bit acrimoniously with them, but you're seeing what he's doing now with Ledesma at Argentina and how they're helping turn a side that has got lots of potential and has always been sort of competitive into an actual side that can win games. Um, and that's what Czechs brings. He brings a pretty hard-nosed edge to, to to how his sides play. And the Stavros, I needed that at that point in time. We needed someone just to come in and just break a few eggs to make the omelette, if that makes sense. And, and he certainly did that. And I think one of the things that helps with Czechs is, I don't know if anyone knows this, but he has a very successful business, fashion business, that makes him him and his wife a lot of money. So he doesn't need the money, if that makes sense, for coaching. So he coaches because he loves coaching and therefore he coaches in the way that he wants to coach. And if like a union or a club owner or whatever tells him it's got to be a different way, he just tells them to do one. And if they don't like it, then he leaves because he doesn't. he's not there for money, he's there for passion. And I think that's a real positive. You know, that 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 is one of the major strengths with him that you know he has got a very clear vision as to how he wants things done. And as a result of that, he pursues that you know vehemently with passion and with vigor. And as a result of that, he gets success because that's you know, that's what he um you know that, that's 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 what he believes and and his sort of style works. If that makes sense. What what was he like as sort of like day to day basis working as him as a player? Was he sort of I guess you hear the story of Stephen Larkham sort of having training schedules like by the minute and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't as regimented yeah. as that, but I, I think he he probably could have been. But I think you know he recognised that in France culturally, mate, it's very very different, right? So they were, you know, it just bringing some form of professionalism and, and structure was what was needed. If he went too far, he'd lose them all. You've mm. got to remember that. When I joined Stad, we were the biggest club in Europe. We had the largest or second largest wage bill in, in the whole of Europe. And yet we trained in the local community gym with like the grannies from in like a, a 1980s gym. You know, I remember we used to go in and they used to have the, the ladders on the wall that used to have a you know, gymnastics class when you're at school. And there'd be like some lady on the 25-year-old treadmill and we were meant to be doing the same thing. So no infrastructure. We used to train on the same pitch that we played on so it was so by the time it came to the weekend the pitch was totally mangled because we'd obviously been training on it all week so no infrastructure whatsoever um and you turn up at training players are sitting outside having a fag and the lunch lunch break would be like two hours where they'd have like big heavy you know beef bourguignon for lunch with a couple of glasses of red wine before they went out and trained in the afternoon i mean you just couldn't write this stuff you were like this is ridiculous for a professional outfit i mean amazing as a life experience but bloody awful as a as a professional so so checks brought in a bit of professionalism but if he'd have come in how he'd been at leinster or you know or with australia or whatever else it, he'd have lost he'd have lost everyone He'd lost all the Frenchies and he'd have been out before he'd even been in. So he, he did it slowly but surely, but he brought, he brought some discipline to, to the team, which, which was needed. 
Well, this, that was a really interesting point, actually, about checks because if you listen to stories he's done with Australia and now, obviously, in Argentina, he's having massive success. That's quite an interesting side. He understood yeah, I think, that he can... I think when you come into an environment whereby they expect it, if you know what I mean, when they're already accustomed to you know, doing all your monitoring properly, trying to eke out every small, you know, incremental gain that you possibly can, all the percentage wins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's when he, yeah, that's when he can really go to town and get get into the detail of it all. But if your starting point is, you know, I've got a physio that turns up at ten and they'll only work a thirty-five hour week, and the moment it hits thirty-five hours, they'll go home. Right, that, that's literally how it works. I mean, you can't start to enforce like r- ridiculous discipline and structure because people are just tell you to do one, and then you'll be on your own. So you need to build your momentum as you go. And I think Czechs recognised that, and he just started to bring in small changes. And but if you'd have looked at where the club was when he started to where it ended, it was twenty times better. Mm, completely. Well, one thing that no, I'm going to quickly touch on is coronavirus obviously had a massive effect on the world of rugby, particularly as you played both 15s and 7s, uh, uh, 15s for a club and 7s for England. There are, the 7s programmes have now been cut by England. And obviously, loads of the 7s boys had to delve into playing 15s. Do you think that they would have been able to adapt to that easily? Um, I mean, it, 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 I don't think... It's, it's obviously a different transition just because of the space. Like That's the biggest thing is is actually sort of managing and understanding space. You've obviously got less of it when you play 15s. Um, so you get less time on the ball. Your, your, your impacts with the ball need to be sort of a bit more significant. But, you know, you're not going to bust the line and, and run 60 in, in a game of 15s every time you do a line break, right? So it's, it's that sort of adjustment. But I think the core skills and the core components are identical. Right? Go on, make good decisions at the breakdown, you need to be strong and aggressive in contact. You need to be totally accurate with your passing and your, and your handling skills. And your tackle execution has got to be on point. Right? You can't can't miss tackles and etc. So all of the transferables, you know, are there. You know, it are are vital. And I think as an outside back, it's a lot easier to make a transition than, you know, a second row or a or, or a back row maybe. But but you know the fundamentals are in sevens. It's one-on-one exposure, so you, it, the magnifying glass is personified. In 15s, if you miss a tackle, it doesn't necessarily result in seven points, whereas in sevens, it probably does. So, so I think you know there's loads of transferable stuff. It's just getting yourself used to the pace of the game, the tempo of the game, and getting used to actually having not as much space as, as you're accustomed to in on a sevens field. But yeah, the, the, the difficulty you've got is a lot of these players. The biggest mistake for me, anyway, was made a few years ago when they moved away from having a harmonious relationship with the clubs and just professionalising the sevens guys. Because it basically meant you were cutting yourself off. And I don't mean this as a disservice to those lads, but you were, just, you were cutting yourself off from the best talent. Because when I, when I was playing, when I was coming through, we had Tom Croft, Danny Kerr, Ben Foden, Hugo Monnier, Tom Youngs, Ben Youngs, James Haskell, you know, Matt Banahan, other all of these players coming through and being nurtured as talent. And it was a cross-pollination between the club and it. They said, right, you're a full-time contract. 
those players had to make a choice or you know or the next crop of players that were like that had to make a choice and the choice was a pretty easy one of I'm going to go play 15s because more money bigger competition clearer route to to you know world cup glory etc 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 so as a result of that you actually got a you, that specific group of players that were right and primed at that time, like Tom Mitchell, Dan Bibby, Dan Norton, James Rodwell, they were great. And then they could become like the best sevens players that they could possibly be. The problem was now you've got no talent coming through. You've got no one coming through to the next next line. That coupled with COVID means all the budget's gone. And I mean, now the whole thing's been disbanded, right? Which is tragic for the game. So, you know, that, that that's the, the downside to it all. So I guess we're coming towards the end of our podcast and we just want to ask a couple more questions. But um, so I guess one thing I've realised about, I guess your your style was sort of speaking on other podcasts and I guess chatting to you now, is that I guess you're quite candid and open about talking about sort of rugby on the pitch and off the pitch and so on. And we sort of see it like sort of other players recently sort of come out and say that rugby needs to have this more sort of fluid sort of these players are not just players, they're also these characters off the field and so on. And you see some of like the All Blacks boys and some of the podcasts and sort of exemplified by like Ellis Genge with his sort of beer interview earlier this year. What's your thoughts on sort of rugby at the moment with sort of the players sort of trying to come out and say they're more than players, they're sort of other things too? Well, I mean, uh, that's 100% right. Okay, I mean, they're human beings at the end of the day just because they were, they've got a natural talent or... Or, or a bit of a gift to go and play professional rugby doesn't mean they're any different from you or I, right? They, they've got the same emotional experiences, the same highs, lows, same life stresses as everybody else. If anything, they may be more magnified because all of their decisions, right or wrong, are are put under the magnifying glass because of the you know the exposure that they get being professional rugby players and the the grilling that the press gives give to them. So I think it's great that you're starting to get more of these voices. The one thing that rugby needs and and lacks at the moment are characters, right? You know, they need stories. They need it needs those those bits of charisma that that make the rugby family, rugby fraternity, a special place to, to be. And the likes of Alex Gens, Joe Marler, James Haskell, these are the guys that are sort of the ones coming towards the end of their career. No, not Ellis Genj, but you know, but but um, that are giving that character and personality to to rugby maritoji as well and through a different lens so i think no i think it's really important the, the danger you've got though is with the scrutiny that's being placed on them and equally the, the judgment that's being placed on these players they're going to be less inclined to open up and give you stories and social media mobile phones mean that it's impossible to ever switch off so you never as a result like there's a danger that you never actually get to meet the authentic genuine them because they're petrified of relaxing and just being themselves around people because someone might have a mobile phone that leaks it onto twitter and then it's in the press the next day and you know they're hauled over the coals so the risk is just not worth it for the for the reward um so that's the only danger that's the only thing i'd sort of say is and that doesn't that goes for all sports right but 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 this this pointless trying to fight against the tide because these things are here they're not going in a way you know no one's going to now not have a 
smartphone or not use Twitter or Instagram or whatever because you know for the good of rugby. So I just think it's 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 that careful balance really of just making sure that you know, you you keep it honest, you keep it authentic, and there's some sort of common sense around how people you know view these view these people and, and empathize with them because they are human they're going to make mistakes and it's actually the, their ability to make mistakes that makes them likable that makes them authentic if they were totally infallible they'd be pretty boring if they never messed up yeah well ollie thank you so much for coming on and just finally one final question um, which we ask every guest when they come on as their favourite moment, but usually it's their career, but obviously you've had done so much after your career. We're asking your favourite moment in your life. What's been just the one highlight? Well, I mean, so my, mine's a bit of obviously a wet one, but but my, mine is going to be the birth of my kids and, and that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, that I was, I was a pretty, I thought I was a mature lad when I was playing, but I was totally immature. I mean, I just lived for, for rugby, Advent, yeah, adventure experience, winning women, you know, it, it, during my rugby career. And then when I realised actually I had two young kids, and just it's just a game changer. It's just the greatest experience of your life, equally the most stressful experience of your life, but but special. So you know, from a human perspective, from a life perspective, is that you know, my wife will kill me if I don't say that you know the day that we got married. So that one too, just throw that one in there to make sure I get the brownie points, but. From a from a playing perspective, my my best career moment collectively was beating New Zealand in their own backyard, having been seventeen nil down at half time, and winning Wellington for the first time that any England side has ever won that, and it was special. Like beating them on the Hooter, nineteen seventeen, still makes me every hair on the back of my neck stand up now. Um, so to do that, to be captain. And to do it with that group of players was just amazing. It was just, oh, if I if I could bottle it and drink it, I'd just drink it every day. Yeah, understandably. Well, Ollie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really interesting and great talk to have you on. And thank you everyone for tuning in once more and we'll see you all very soon. Thanks, guys. Cheers, boys. Podcast Network.